was the first time that I actually discovered the world of sound. You know, before then, it was just whatever instruments were available. I never ever thought to really record just sound, just the world of sound. I was just blown away by sound that I'd never really noticed. Every sound of every day, of every moment of every day. I just never listened to it. Do you know what? I mean, it was there, but I just never really listened. And it was a massive epiphany for me, to the point where I couldn't unhear things, anything. And then everything became musical. Every time I sat on the train, every time, everywhere I went, I could just hear music all the time. It was really like a door had just been massively flung open. Hello everyone, Kirk here with a special treat for you all, a conversation with singer, songwriter, and composer Imogen Heap. Earlier this year, I did an episode on her breakout hit song, Hide and Seek. She heard that episode and enjoyed it, so I reached out and asked if she'd be into coming onto the show. We had a really fun chat about her approach to songwriting, technology, hardware development, sound design, a whole bunch of other topics. It was a great conversation, and I hope that you have half as much fun listening to it as I had having it. So yeah, without further ado, let's get to it. Imogen Heap, welcome to Strong Songs. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure <laughs> to have you here. This is very exciting. You're the first guest I've ever had where I've done an episode about a song that you wrote and now you're on the show. Is so that it's true? very exciting I'm for really me. surprised. Yes. Oh, well, I was very impressed, I have to say. I felt very smart and intelligent <laughs> in my songwriting ever since. <laughs> so I guess I want to talk about live performance first because that's been on my mind a lot recently just because it is now an option after having not been an option for so long. Yeah. So you do all kinds of different kinds of live performances. How has the last year not being able to perform changed how you think about live performance? Um, to be honest, I've, I actually, f I finished touring. Um, I did manage to squeeze in a tour, almost like I planned it before all of this. Um, mm, nice. So I did, I did have a tour and I, I don't actually tour that often. I tour about as frequently as I make a record, surprisingly enough, um, mm. about once every four or five years. So okay. I... I actually was kind of okay with not doing the live shows. What I really missed was um, being able to get in the studio. Yeah, it's, it has been a bit tricky kind of managing not being able to do that um, because of lockdown, mm -hmm. because of the schools being shut. So, um, so what I ended up doing was doing a lot more live improv shows um, because I didn't want to just do the same songs over and over again and I didn't want to have to practice because I couldn't practice but what I could do was put together a little setup and be able to just improvise just just play whatever came to mind and whoever wanted to watch that could watch it, it was totally free so it wasn't like you know I wasn't asking them for money so they didn't have to stay and watch it and if they didn't like right. it they could just leave um so, but the main reason for doing it actually was I realised that my mental health took a severe um, downward spiral, as did I'm sure many people, um, because not being able to do the things which you're so used to doing and which validate who you are often, um, and then not having not having that possibility to kind of level yourself was deeply uh, un unsettling. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I realised that I needed to improvise. I needed to get back to basics with the piano and just what I did was when I was a child was I would just play and play and play. And it was a kind of therapy for me. I didn't realise it at the time, but um, that's just how I got through, you know, stuff, you know, in the day. Um, not that it was like tragic or anything. It just got me through the day. Um, mm -hmm. So I just thought I needed that again. Um, so actually what's happened during lockdown is I've just become a bit less worried about 
a performance, you know, that it can't be this perfect thing. Um, just kind of opening up and just a bit like, you know, what the hell? Just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna play what comes to mind and I'm gonna show this is what I actually love to do. Just kind of get into the flow of music making, in the in the flow of creation of stuff. And I really I love perfecting stuff in the studio too. But I've never really shown that other side of me, other than like a few minutes here and there on a live tour or something. So that was really amazing to be able to share that um, in public. And I managed to quite often get into that, you know, sacred flow state um, whilst fans were online. And invariably during those moments, there's always something that comes up, something kind of magical, some little magical... um, motif or a little vocal idea that would spring out and it was at the same time that I was thinking oh this is something nice about this that I would see the comments on YouTube um say oh I really like this one you should do a song out of this so we both we all witnessed kind of the birth of song ideas together many song ideas um and I don't know that was something I'd never experienced before I've never had fans in the room when I'd kind of found the kernel of a song idea you know, usually that's yeah. done in the privacy and, and, and most of the times they just kind of get lost because you don't have the time or moment, you know, motivation to go and finish things. Mm-hmm. Um, but because they were there and they witnessed it, it became more real somehow and it and it's made me want to finish them. I still haven't had any time to finish them. But um, Yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> but there are a few that I really love and that I'm, I am, you know, trying to carve out time um, to finish. But... It is extremely hard to carve to carve out time at the moment in my life. Um, well, I can imagine. So. Um, I've yeah, I've always hesitated to share the creative process with people live in that way, just because it feels very exposing and very different from the songwriting process of like when you're in the studio working on the song and perfecting it and just spending forever and it's totally yours and it can just be there's like that sense of possibility it can be anything you could totally change it and once people have heard it it sometimes feels to me like oh well now it's a little more set in stone and I can't change even though that's not true it can kind of feel that way Mm -hmm. do you see yourself allowing people in more to your creative process like in the future now that you don't have to be you know doing things online necessarily um well I've always done that but not to that degree like I would when a song is kind of I you know like kind of 75% on its way through I mean I would talk about Mm -hmm. songs before but I wouldn't I wouldn't share such an early scrap of an idea um but maybe I would actually I would I would share those early early moments it's just I just never opened up the possibility that they might be there when I actually create them. Because usually you'd make an idea and you'd be like, oh, listen to this, this is really good. Mm -hmm. You yourself are choosing out of the many millions of moments in your life when you had ideas that this one is worth sharing. But we, it's, it's just interesting that when those moments came up where I instinctively feel like, oh, there's something about this. Um, Because sometimes I play for six hours, like my longest stream was six hours of just whatever. Um, and during that, maybe there were three or four really nice ideas. Um, so, I don't know. I just, I guess I just thought, why does it matter? You know, why does it, why why would it, why should it be embarrassing or why would it be strange? Um, I just, I didn't expect that to happen, actually. I didn't expect to be coming up with song ideas. I just expected to just be improvising because that's what happens when mm-hmm. you are improvising. You kind of like, oh, I could stop and start to turn that into a song or I could just carry on improvising and just enjoy the flow and not worry about it, not 
try kind of take it seriously. And so I suppose that did still happen. It's just that by way of them being there, witnessing that moment, it became, it has the more of a possibility to become something, more of um, a, a reason for me to go in and do something about it. That's really cool. They're kind of documenting the moment for you. So yeah. when you can, you can return to it and they have marked it by saying, hey, that was a cool idea. You know, three hours into the stream, you, yeah. you created this thing. Yeah. And you can see it. You can see it on the YouTube comments. Um, and then a couple of my fans, um, a couple of the heapsters, as they call themselves, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> are part of my, I have this app and there's like a really core group of like, I think maybe like the really engaged ones are like 50 or 60 of them. There's mm -hmm. like 300 of them on the kind of the Discord. But then there's, I don't know, maybe a, a thousand or something kind of subscribers to my app. And um, it's those people who I kind of, who turn up, you know. It's not right. the person who likes hide and seek and they've never heard anything else. Um, <laughs> it's those it's those core people. Um, so, can't remember where I was going with that. But, oh yeah, Billsy. So I was just remembering that um, they... So a couple of them have actually like really gone in there and, and documented in, in a Google spreadsheet nice. and they've like put it out and they've put the key and the tempo um, and what I said so that I can go back and reference it. So they're really helpful. You know, they're like being my musical PAs. Nice. That's cool. <laughs> you So you've been making music for 20 odd years or so and so much has changed in the way that audiences interact with performers. How is your conception of your relationship with audiences like in live performance now performing online with your fans like through your app there are all these different vectors for interacting with them how has your conception of that relationship changed uh, especially kind of recently in the last five or six years um i suppose i mean if it, i was actually thinking about it just as you said it i was thinking that when i first started writing like improvising on the piano that's what I would do when I, I went to school. I went to a boarding school um, when mm -hmm. I was 12 to, for like three years. And that's what I would do. I would sit in, at the piano and I would play for hours or as many hours as I could in between, you know, whatever homework and t having to eat and all the things we had to do. Right, right. All the boring stuff. Yeah. And in between we had a bit of free time. And for quite a lot of the time in the beginning, I was basically trying to avoid people because you know, it, life wasn't that fun at the beginning of boarding school when, you, when nobody mm. really knows you and they all think you're pretty sad and a bit not cool. So I spent a lot of my time playing the piano. Um, but then later, that kind of improvised space where I would just jam and come up with ideas, not ever wanting to really be anything just because I, I always loved doing that. And my friends would sit in, in the room with me and just listen and kind of we just chat and then I play and hmm. it was just kind of part of the flow of the day when I had friends yeah. I didn't have friends in the beginning um but actually the music did bring friends to me you know I did used to play one of my um kind of arch enemies uh, in the beginning Lucy um she she was going through a tough time at school and she would listen outside the door and then kind of scurry away just before I closed up the piano room um and I'd often see her kind of heading up to, to school to you know to the dorm just slightly ahead of me and I was like oh I wonder where she's been mm. um, <laughs> and then one night she just came in um she just came in and sat on the the filing cabinet and looked out the window and um, it was just like we didn't say anything to each other but she just wanted to come in and she was crying um, and then we just kind of walked back to school together 
Um, and then from then on, we became really good friends. Wow. What a story. That's yeah. such a great story. So wow. there's always been, in a way, I guess it's just been a really long journey back to that, like a 30 year journey, mm. um, back to just playing with people in the room, just doing something that feels very natural to me um, in the presence of others who enjoy it. That's really beautiful. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I can, I can kind of see that. I find that you're a very open performer. When I've watched videos of you performing, it seems like you're very dedicated to tearing down boundaries between you and the audience. The gloves that you've designed that we can talk about in a second, that just the way that you, you'll wear a microphone that you're, you know, you're not singing into a microphone that's on a stand. You have it like attached to you in some way. Mm. I always find myself anyways, or I've, and a lot of musicians I've known, wanting some sort of a barrier between themselves and the audience. Like if mm. you hold a guitar, you kind of have something between you and them. If you're at a microphone on a stand, you have something between you and them. And the more you remove that stuff, the more vulnerable it can feel. Mm. And you do it in a way where I'll watch you and just be like, if I were doing that, I would be totally freaked out by this. Like mm. it's just me and then 10 feet away, there's this person and there's nothing in between us. <laughs> apart from the massive stage that you're standing on um, and all the lights cre creating that barrier. <laughs> How do you think about that? Or, or what's that process been like for you? Um, yeah, I, in the beginning, um, when I was playing to strangers, I was m like mournfully uh, just shy um, and didn't know what to mm -hmm. say to the audience. And if you saw early videos of me, like in Camden, when I was like 18, singing to the, singing to the crowd, um, I was just like hair down, you know, all in black, just kind of like barely looked at the audience and just, you know, was very moody mm -hmm. and didn't really know what I was doing because I was still a teenager. Mm -hmm. um, sure, I can imagine. But then I think the first time it really changed was because I had a band and I just kind of, you know, would chat to my band, but I wouldn't really talk to the audience. So I'd say something like, yeah, anyway, this one's about mm, or whatever, and then just sing a song. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Just totally self-conscious. Um, and then... When my band weren't allowed to travel with me to America, I was really upset about that because um, I loved the, the the sound that we had live on stage. You know, I had some pretty amazing band members. I had Leo Abrahams, who's this like incredible producer, um, so songwriter, guitarist, genius nice. man, um, and John Hopkins, mm -hmm. who was my keyboard player. Um, so we were like this sure. amazing band, and the bass and the, the, the David and um, Alex were great too, of course. So anyway. I wasn't allowed my band to go to America and I was like, but I don't want to play my songs on the piano. That's like, that's so boring. So you were um, just singing without playing piano? You were just, that was the main thing you were doing? No, I, I, no, I had my keyboard. I had like an Insonic okay. thing that I played um, and I would, you know, do whatever. I was like, I never had not, I actually know that sometimes I did just like shout or scream right. um, because it was quite angry sounding stuff back then. Um, sure. But I still had my microphone and, you know, I was, Lots yeah, of makeup yeah, yeah. hiding away. Um, so when I went to the States, I was kind of immediately plonked in front of an audience who was giving me their full undivided attention. Um, you know, I had actually had a residency at this place called, I think it was called Bottom of the Hill in San Francisco. Oh, I, I know was, that club. I lived in San Francisco for a while. That's a really oh, okay. cool club. Oh, nice. that, that, that's a great place to play. Well, I wasn't actually legally allowed in there, I don't think, or because I wasn't 21 yet. Um, oh, that's funny. But I, I don't think they realised that in the beginning. And then they were like, are you? How old are you? Um, You're like, just don't ask. You don't want to know. It's fine. I was like, can I still drink? Can I still have a drink, please? Because, you know, I need my drinks. Um, mm -hmm. So it was during that, really, that I, I just, I had to speak to the audience because often I'd forget my lyrics or, you know, I couldn't just completely not say anything in between. It would be so awkward. So I just 
I just got, you know, I just was like, oh, to hell with it. I'll just, I'll just be myself. I'll just try and be myself. Um, and I tried. And I realised that the more times that I messed up, the more times I was human, the more times I showed, you know, that I fail, of course, too, um, mm-hmm. the more, you know, cheers and love I'd get back from the audience. So quite early on, I realised, oh, OK, I don't have to be like perfect and, thought, you know, 100% all the time. It's actually nice to see that fragility um, on on the stage. And um, so that just gave me, a, I just felt very relaxed after that, really, because I felt, well, even if I mess up my lyrics, they still like it. They just like me. They like me and my music. So, well, so I guess, yeah, from there, uh, I took that into many shows later where I do things that are way beyond my capabilities. Um, but I was just, I was just going to try them, you know, like really way too complex looping when I should have just been singing because the other thing that happens when you sing when you're doing looping or when I do looping um is that I just go out of tune because <laughs> my brain's like trying to do this thing over here and at mm-hmm. the same time it's trying to do this thing um so I, in my performances I often sound really out of tune <laughs> if I listen back to them I actually can't really sing that well um but if I'm just singing um then you know it's fine because my brain's like 100% doing one thing um so anyway yeah long story short I guess it's given me the that kind of personality that's grown over the years of just feeling relaxed in front of my crowd and then being so nice and accepting and not expecting it to be perfect um, has given me that kind of ticket to be able to develop something like the gloves in front of uh, in front of a live audience many, many times and to be able to learn from our mistakes and iterate and go back and test out new technology on the stage, which makes the gloves so amazing because they're like fully tested in front of every single live environment you can imagine um and the whole kind of system is developed around making live performance easier um in the especially in the the glover software you know the flow of how you program your your sets inside Glover. yeah maybe could you just tell listeners sort of i think a lot of people know about the Mimu gloves they're really really cool or at least they're really cool looking could you just maybe <laughs> quickly explain to people what they are how they work so they're basically just a pair of data gloves, <laughs> um, yeah. but they're made by us and there's nothing like them out there. Um, they are extremely beautifully well made. Um, they have eight bend sensors. They have three on each long finger and two on the others. Um, they've got lights for feedback and for, we've got buzzers for haptic feedback. And then we have an IMU on the back of the, the hand. And uh, that gives us, sorry, it's not on the hand, it's on the wrist, um, a kind of the chunk, as we call it. Mm -hmm. And in the chunk is your battery and your IMU. Um, And that gives you direction and speed and position, basically. So movement, direction and speed. Um, Mm -hmm. So you have accelerometer peaks that you can use for drums playing, for example, or you can just, you know, wave your arm out to the top right corner. with a certain posture, maybe like a one finger point or closed fist or a secret finger, as I call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can assign those to different kind of effects or anything you want to map it to. It's so like it any be, MIDI parameter, right? Like anything exactly. you want to map it to pretty much. Yes, yeah, so it could be anything at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really super fun and you get to create your own gestural language out of it. It's not something that we we don't kind of depict what, um, postures you should have or you should use. Everybody, you know, very uses their own variations. But most of the time, it's the ones that 
you know, you don't have to think about. They're just like closed fist, open hand, one finger point, two finger point, like mm-hmm. an okay sign, uh, puppet hand, <laughs> secret finger, T finger, rock sign. Um, nice. And they're all very clear cut and independent from one another. So the the posture recognition works really well for them. Um you know, I'm sure lots of people do the middle finger, but I haven't done that because I'm just too British. <laughs> you get like a certain chord that plays whenever you do that. <laughs> Maybe, like a really distorted. Um, right, right. Yeah, scary chord. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's so fun now seeing other people use them because it really does bring out your personality. You know, however you move, however your kind of personality, whether you're slightly quirky, slightly funny, you know, whether you're just really kind of chill and relaxed, it's, it really takes on the personality um of the of the of the player um because essentially what it's doing is it's they're trying to fill in the gaps of where there isn't a a presence so it could be in the effects they don't have a kind of physical form um they mm-hmm. are just like not to 127 they're right. or like on and off um so you have to turn that into something by mapping it or using a mouse or, you know, using mm-hmm. a fader. Um, and they're not very exciting, are they, to do? Um, they're quite, <laughs> you know, they're not very intuitive and they don't look fun to play. So being able to just do something as simple as raise your arm out and pull a massive long reverb on your voice and the mm-hmm. audience go, oh, she's, her voice has got really big and her hand moved out. They're not even, they're not going, oh, her hand has moved out, she's in secret finger and her arm has moved out. That means right. the reverb has gone to 127 and now it's back to zero when her chest, when it comes back to her chest. You know, all they're thinking is like, wow, that feels really normal and kind of how it should be. You know, oh, she's playing the drums and the drums are coming out. You know, she's making mm-hmm. a drum, air drum, and the drum's coming out. So actually, in many ways, it kind of looks quite underwhelming um, because it's it should it, it feels like that's what it should be. That's that should have been possible, um, but there wasn't anything that did that to that degree, and there wasn't anything on the shelves. If there was, then I could have saved myself a lot of hundreds of thousands of pounds, <laughs> um, and I would have bought them immediately. But um, but we're, we're super, super proud of what we've built together. It's, it's They're really amazing. Um, yeah, they look super cool. I'd love to play around with them sometimes. They're, it's interesting when you talk about the audience being able to see what you're doing, especially when you're applying some, you know, filter or effect. When you see someone move their hand and a, you know, phaser effect becomes more pronounced, they can sort of understand it where, you know, if you have seen a rock band play or something a lot of times like the guitar nerds will be there watching the guitar players feet trying to figure yeah. out you know yeah, what what they're hitting but then a lot of times guys will have effects built into their guitar or like yeah. a rack unit with just a midi controller and you can't even see what's happening yeah. so it's like you're kind of surfacing a lot of that stuff for the audience in addition to making it more intuitive for the musician on stage yeah yeah that's right yeah just kind of bringing out what's in the box um mm-hmm. and there's such a big part of the performance, you know, a delay can really make or break a song. Um, A harmonizer can make or break a song. And if you can see that kind of being brought in and out um, and loops, obviously as well, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's so fun to just like literally grab my voice with a fist. And when I release my fist, then the loop is free, you know, off it goes and I can pan it left to right and it just kind of sticks to my hand, even though of course it's not, but that's what it feels sure, like. But, um, <sighs> and then just like quickly building up loops and just moving mm-hmm. them here and there and, you know, reversing them. It just all becomes so normal. Um, 
so much so that often I like I think it, I think I did it on um, oh, tiny desk. I was playing uh, speeding cars and I didn't have my gloves on, and I haven't because mm-hmm. because uh, I only use them for the one song, and. And I did do that. I did do the thing of bringing out my my reverb, but I, I'm nothing like, oh, happened. I haven't got my reverb. Um, <laughs> but it's become su- such second nature, and that's that's so nice. It's just you don't have to think about it. You can go from track to track, and you know you obviously have to do a lot of mapping in advance to make it that easy to remember. Um, but you know, eventually, after a year or whatever, of somebody really using something. You just get to know your way around it, and then it's really easy to just chuck it on different songs or, or improvise with your little set of tools. Yeah, I find with a lot of technology, you know, I'm a so I'm a saxophonist first and foremost, and then play a bunch of analog instruments, and I gradually learn stuff, and I do some live looping, and have learned looping. But there's always this feeling of someone telling me, "Oh, well, get this looper. This is the easiest one to use. <laughs> it's going to be second nature. It's going to be so fast." And then I get it. Like I got the big boss one and it's really cool and I can do yeah. all this cool stuff with it. But then like I just am like pretty overwhelmed and soon I'm trying to program this MIDI controller to use it. And then <laughs> I get to a certain point and then someone's like, "Well, now you got to try this looper. It's even better." There's yeah. always this kind of move toward the new thing without that period of time that it requires to master it. Mm. Um you developed the Mew Mew gloves so you've been using them for what eight years or something like that what do you think the learning curve is like on that instrument and do you see it as something that someone could learn and like really just stick with for an extended period of time yeah I mean you have to really invest you know your time into anything yeah otherwise it will just disappear I mean you know I've had the same software that I use forever just because I know it but it's not the best out there um, it's just how I have ended up making my music and I just fall into the same apps and the same sounds and, and I, that's just how I found myself. Yeah, there's there's always the latest this and the better that and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you've got to, you can't just buy every looper on the planet, can you? You've just got to <laughs> no. find your, find the one that works for you. And then when you've fully outgrown it and you feel like, do you know what, there's this, actually I really want to, do something different because I feel like I'm just repeating myself now when you've got to the the edge of um, mm-hmm. your explorations in in a device um, and you feel that you are becoming the sound of the device rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what's quite exciting about the gloves is that the gloves themselves obviously don't have any sound. Um, it's just what you put in, put what you want to play. So it's, 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 it complements entirely everything that you have. Um, you could use it with any looper that you like because you could still map. I mean, it would be a little, you know, you'd have to do a little wizardry. Um, but there could be just a couple of things that you're like, it's really annoying to have to press that button when I want mm-hmm. to do that live. You know, one thing could just be done, you know, quite nicely with a, a quick flick of the wrist or whatever. Um so you don't have to do everything on them. You just it just fills in the gaps where nothing else works. Um and for me it, it really is quite a magic experience to be on the stage, my eyes closed, and I've got the sounds that I need at my fingertips and I can I can just yeah, get lost in the world, loop after loop. Sometimes I forget to open my eyes because I don't need to look at anything. Um right. and I have to remember there's an audience here you must look um but it's so nice to not have to look at anything and not have to find a button um just that it's all right there in your hands 
Yeah. You so you do a lot of looping. I'm guessing that looping also factors into your writing process when you're writing music and you've been building loops and you know layering yourself for so long. How do you think that that's affected your conception of music composition, of songwriting, like to have these blocks that repeat that sort of layer on top of one another in that way? Yeah, uh, probably quite negatively um because you do yeah. fall into you know patterns of fall um and it's hard to get out of that um what i'm really i've always been really inspired by tim exar I love the way he improvises. He mm. um, came on tour with me. I, I invited him up because I went to see my friend John um, Hopkins play a gig in, at the Roundhouse in Camden. And then the person that was with him that evening was this guy called Tim Exile. And he had this machine that he'd kind of built um, using Behringer decks and some other stuff and um, mm. like a little chaos pad. And I can't remember exactly, but just a few little bunches of things with this amazing react patch that he'd created um from scratch for many years and just kind of like added to it and and how he improvised with um with his tech the the way that it didn't feel like oh they're using a looper and then around they go and mm-hmm. around they go and now they record another thing and then, and then they repeat and then they <laughs> right, you know and right. it feels like a massive surgical thing to have to try and take right. one of them out um he is just so fluid in it and he can go between keys and he's like changing things and reversing it and just filtering filtering in a really amazing way and then he's making up a lyric and it is just like such an amazing flow so exhilarating to watch I was like literally jumping out of my skin when I saw this for the first time. I just thought, how does this, how does this happen? Um, how could he be so at one with his technology? Like when I use technology, yeah. I just feel like there's all these barriers and I can't ever really improvise with it. Um, but that's because he developed it purely for that purpose. And now he has an app um, called Endless with three S's. Oh, nice. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's nowhere near like kind of that. Um, complex sure. but what it does do is it immediately gets you into a very playful creative space so if you're anything like me you're kind of a little bit scared in the studio kind of find any reason really not to turn on the mic and maybe you'll just make yourself another cup of tea and oh I've got to do this email oh, oh no I haven't done a whole nother day of music I have no idea what you're talking about I've uh, never felt that way <laughs> but if you just stick on the app um, you can immediately make something that sounds super cool and then it's all yours nice. and you can just drag and drop it into Ableton or whatever you whatever you want to work on. And you're already like 20% of the way there. So that's really changed things for me. Um, there's something about, again, this kind of not taking it too seriously and just having fun. Just have fun, get in there. You know, don't be too conceptual about everything or kind of beat yourself up about not having the best drum sound the first thing that you pull up um or oh no this sounds too much like that oh no that sounds too much like that you know and then you're just killing these ideas before they've even got anywhere um yeah but there's just something really lovely about playing with endless that gets you 
just erases all that stuff immediately because it already just sounds great. Um, and you can quickly like move the tempo up and down or change the key and um, and you can just do it in while you're waiting to get a coffee, you know. In right, because you can just do it on your phone, which is, it's on your phone. yeah, that's pretty nice. And you can record vocals in it and it, I love it nice. as a sketch pad. Um, it's, it's great, great, great. And uh, I've written loads of ideas on it and, and I also, you know, I also jam with my fans in it because it's the whole idea of it is collaborative. So oh, man. I've often done live shows uh, with the endless community where they'd be playing along and, and I'd be playing along. Um, and then my stream would be the one that's going out, but to them, they can just hear the loops that I've updated and then they play sure. loops back. Yeah. It's a really, it's really game changing. I think he's massively onto something. Huh, that's cool. I'll have to check it out. I'll, I'll throw a link down in show notes for any listeners who want to check that out. Yeah. This is a big question, but how do you think of the relationship between harmony and rhythm? <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think. Harmony and rhythm, how do I think about it? Um, I don't know. I've never thought about it. I've just done it. Um, to me, like harmony and rhythm, just they, because I'm a pianist, um, they just always come together. You know, sure. there's no way to separate it um, because you've got left hand and right hand and they have to form a mm-hmm. rhythm of some sort, even if it's really slow. Um, <laughs> so to me, they're very much embedded with, they're very wedded together for me. Um I I often syncopate melodies or harmony becomes the rhythm. Most of the ideas are something that I might start singing, but they wouldn't be like just a. It would it would be a, a rhythmic riff, um, a rhythmic melodic riff, like mm-hmm. so you've got the rhythm. Right. Um, so yeah, they're very intertwined. <laughs> it sounds like you kind of start with melody a lot when you're writing. Is that is that right? I guess so. Um, having said that, the other day I did pull up a nice little um, virtual instrument on Native Instruments and um, Contact Sorry, and I, what was it? It was like a some kind of African rhythms. And I, th- somebody actually in, I was chatting to one of my fans, and they were like, because I chat to my fans every Thursday um, in my in this chair. And we developed my own AI. We're very slow now. We've oh. only done, we've had it for a year. In fact, uh, mm-hmm. we sung a Imogen Happy Birthday last Tuesday, actually, because I couldn't oh, do nice. I couldn't do Thursday. Um so it was one of the guys in there said it was actually Billsy. He was like, look, you've you've done some stuff with an Indian, you know, singer and you've done loads of stuff in America. Um mm-hmm. but you've never really done anything African. Um and I was like, hmm, you're you're right. But actually a lot of That's my right. early music kind of did have those kind of African rhythms. Um anyway, so I just thought, okay, I'm I'm going to look at that. And so I, when I was looking at just something to start the other day, um, I came across this really cool rhythm with an instrument I, I can't remember the name of. Um, and so that's how I started. Um, and then I wrote this really cool piece, actually, um, which doesn't sound like anything else I've done, uh, which is nice. Well, actually, that's probably not true, because I always think that, and then I'm like, no, that sounds exactly yep, like actually, me. Actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always think I'm doing something yeah. dreadfully, uh, you know, new, but it always ends up sounding like... Um, you know, that same old structure. Sure. That, I always find that it's interesting how easy it is now to just find an instrument where I've never heard of it, but it's in some pack. Like Native has a lot of good stuff like that, where yeah. it's, just, it's an instrument that somebody really plays somewhere in the world that's like an actual whole part of this music scene. But because it's so easy to just load it up on my computer, I can just start a loop going and then write something else over it, which creates this sort of 
like it it blurs the identity with a lot of music, but in a way that creates a sort of broader musical identity. Yeah. I think that thing is kind of cool. Is that how you kind of go about finding sounds? Like when you're exploring, I know you've made some sounds yourself, but when you're just messing around, is it just sort of go through presets and like find things that you like, or do you take a more specific approach? Yeah, I haven't I haven't done so much of that actually, but because of time, um, I am more and more doing that actually. Um, normally mm. I wouldn't. I would just kind of like go into studio, like find something I like the sound of or just make a weird sound and then just kind of go in and find rhythm in it. And then mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't really have a method. Um, it might be a little piano riff or it might be the sound of a heating thing uh, or the walking of somebody up the steps. It could be like what happened just earlier there was like a, a clank sound that, that happened as I was doing another podcast and I was like oh I really like that sound I'll keep that for later um so it's quite it's quite all over the place to be honest because I I don't really I don't make music anywhere near as much as I I should or as much as I have I won't say I should because I think I'm doing exactly what I should be doing um well, that's good but if I was making it more regularly, then I would have a go-to way to do things. Um, but because there's such wide intervals between the points of when I actually get to be in the studio and finish a song, um, I always kind of seem to forget how I do it. And then I have to go, I don't know how to write music. How, did I, how do I do that again? <laughs> I'm sure you, everybody gets that anyway, yes. all the time. You're like, do I, how do I actually make songs? How do I actually... Mm-hmm. Really? Did I actually do that? Right. Um, so, but yeah, it just happens obviously by a little bit at a time. Um, and you always have those doubts. So, but I do, I do like, there's some amazing software instruments. Yeah, it's true. And I have a, I have an assistant now. He's great. He's called Alexi and he's been working with me since Scout was born. Um, and he just like, I just said, just deck out my studio, my little, cause I have a studio, like a proper studio, um, with uh, at my old studio where I used to live, but I don't live there anymore because mm-hmm. we're here now with Scout here in Hackney. So I have a tiny little studio, um, which is basically just some speakers and a computer and a microphone. That's kind of all you need. Sometimes. Yeah, it is all you need. <laughs> you but can you do, do a lot need with some that. really good sounds um, because yes. I don't have any of my instruments here. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I do tend to. But, but at the moment, it's mainly a combination of stuff in Endless. I've got my own. Uh, virtual instrument that I made with Sonic Yeah, Chir. you do. So I've got all my hang and I've got my... Uh, did we record the hang? No, we didn't record the hang. We've got my Embira and some cello stuff and some mm-hmm. v- Bode vibes and bits and bobs like that. So I've got all of that. Um, yeah, I I don't know. It, it just really is what it is at that point and whatever is at hand is at hand and that's what it is. I don't... You know, I saw a video the other day of Will I Am, just kind of, he's got this like crazy fancy studio. And he like brought in an interview and he was like, okay, we're going to make a track. And then there he did. He made this brilliant track and he's obviously just mm-hmm. got his things he goes to and he made it and it was great. Um, and he'd probably make another one the day after and the day after and the day after. Right, and then right. he'll pick like one out of 365, uh, <laughs> one of his, you know, that he does every day. And he'll be like, oh, that's a good one. Sure. Um, but with me, it's like, I start a thing and then I put it away for a bit and then I come back and then I carry on and then I think about it and then I'll have like 12 hours where I've got 12 hours to myself where Scout's maybe sleeping with her dad or something somewhere um, and then I will really go for it uh, and then something will emerge but it's quite a, a bitty thing um, the last track that I did last night of an empire 
just uh, the only reason I started that was like, I need to write something that makes me want to move around because I like dancing, but I haven't really got any like dancey songs. So I just started making a beat that I liked. Um, nice. And then at the same time, all this kind of election stuff was going on with Trump and I was just appalled by it all. Um, mm-hmm. And so I wrote something in the with that in mind. Um, nice. Last Night of an Empire, you know, hoping. Um, an appropriate name, as it <laughs> <laughs> of sound design stuff you use a lot of found sounds i saw a video that you made or a, a performance that you streamed on youtube where it was you in your kitchen just yeah. playing everything in the kitchen and creating this whole you know piece of music out of that line between sound design and composition because it seems pretty fluid for you in a way that's very cool and it sounds like from what you're talking about in your process it's like very much like a fluid thing yeah it's true um yeah I think that there was a moment when I went I was invited to write a, a film score it was the first one I would have done um in fact I still haven't done one <laughs> um I've done a tiny one actually during lockdown that's funny I mean you've had so many songs in movies but yeah, like, I, I guess a film score is a different thing yeah but this was called The Crimson Wing and they invited me to go to Tanzania and I had the most amazing time for like three weeks and we nice. were led through the Ngorongora crater and we had this amazing nice. Maasai guide and this crazy good food and lived in this hut and it was just so good. All these flamingos, it was all about flamingos, the Crimson Wing. Um, but to go there, they were like, I didn't know, you know, where to start. So I was like, obviously I have to come and I'll bring some binaural headphones. I mean, some binaural mic, which look like Mm -hmm. headphones. Um, And I took that and a little wave recorder, a little Zoom. And that was the first time that I actually discovered the world of sound. You know, before then it was just whatever instruments were available. I never, ever thought to really record just sound, just the world of sound I did actually I used to make like in one of my early songs called Rake It In I do remember feeling quite excited about making a guillotine sound out of um, <laughs> a slowed down squeaky chair that was in the studio oh nice alright but other it. than that I didn't really do much of that um, so yeah it was it was there in uh, at Lake Natron that I was just blown away by sound that I'd never really noticed every sound of every day, of every moment of every day. I just never listened to it. Do you know what? I mean, it was there, but I just never really listened. Um, right. And it was a massive epiphany for me um, to the point where I couldn't unhear things, anything. 
And then everything became musical. Every time I sat on the train, every time, everywhere I went, mm-hmm. I could just hear music all the time. Um, it was really like a door had just been massively flung open. And um, I had a, a music professor back in school who made us, he would just be like, you have to sit for five minutes with your eyes closed and just listen to everything around you and catalog each thing that you hear. Yeah, that's and great. By the end of the five minutes, you'll be totally freaking out. And it was a, it was a pretty mind-blowing experience yeah, that's because so cool. you kind of turn your ears on and you hear it. Yeah. So there's a saying, only write what you can see in the headlights, only do what you can see in the headlights. Mm. Um, I've heard you talk about this quote, this approach to songwriting. And I thought it was a really beautiful encapsulation of like a great approach to writing. And I thought listeners might think it was cool, too. So can you maybe explain that approach to songwriting? Um, Well, it came about a kind of desperation, really. I was I was in this studio that I had rented for a year. And I'd bought all the equipment. I'd remortgaged my flat. This is when I was 24. And I didn't, I couldn't bear to be with another record label. So I, I took out the money from my flat and I bought, a, I bought whatever it was, 50 grand's worth of equipment. And I rented the studio and I booked in my mastering date for exactly a year later on my birthday. And um, during this process, there was this one song that was driving me nuts. Um, and it was called daylight robbery and I called it daylight robbery because it robbed me of lots of daylight um, <laughs> um, and also discovered the real reason why daylight robbery is called daylight robbery do you know where, do you know why should I tell you no I don't so a long time ago um, they would tax people on the amount of windows that their property had hmm. so people boarded up their windows and then they would have to pay less tax interesting so okay that's why it's called daylight robbery um, got it uh, anyway, so what was I saying? I'm just happy to have learned that fact. Oh, yeah. I feel like I've, I've learned a new thing that I wasn't expecting <laughs> to learn on this. Anyways, go ahead. So I was, I was, I was writing up something in Yahoo. This is before Google existed, um, and I was like, "How do you write a song?" Because I just couldn't finish this bloody song. It was like I'd I'd done like seven different versions of it, and I loved the riff. The riff came first. I really loved it. I was like, oh, there's something really cool about this. I had so many different versions of the lyric, so many different melody versions. I just couldn't make a decision. Anyway, so I searched, how do you write a song? And I came across this blog that was written by a creative writer and she said um when i can't finish something i just i just do like the bit that i can see and i just worry about that so if all i can see is the eyebrows of the man then i will describe Mm -hmm. the eyebrows and then when i've described the eyebrows maybe the light in his hair will emerge and then i'll and then i will see what kind of light it is and then i will see what the town looks like you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so i was like wow that's really cool because all i could see was (laughs) everything that i couldn't finish you know all the multitude Mm -hmm. of things i still had to do in a whole album all by myself you know this crazy thing that i was trying to do and um so I was like, okay. And it said in it, so only do what you can see in the headlights. Meaning if you're driving down, you know, um, a dark night and there's a sheer cliff to your left and a sheer cliff to your right. Um, and all you can, you've just got to do what you can do right then because 
doing anything else is ridiculous. You, you can't see it. You can't. You mm-hmm. can't go there. So to so just do what you can, and then when you see something come in the headlights, like a little bunny, then you stop. Have a look at the bunny. <laughs> um, carry on when the bunny's gone. Maybe there's a bridge, so you just go over the bridge. Notice the water. So mm-hmm. that's what I started to do. I was like, okay, I'll just do what I can do right now, and then I'll do the next thing that I can do, and I'll just keep doing it. And eventually, I finished the album. <laughs> well, at first, I finished the song, and then I finished the album. Nice. Well, yeah, it's it, it eventually right. You've driven through the whole county, and you sort of charted every road. Like you've <laughs> built a lot of really large and ambitious musical things despite sometimes just focusing on the thing right in front of you. I think that's really beautiful and really helpful. I mean, God, for me as a writer, I need to remind myself of that constantly. And I hadn't thought of that concept in a long time, but it's very, very cool. So uh, hopefully some folks out there get something out of it too. Speaking of, so I want to talk about a couple of your specific projects only because they're, well, in different ways, very ambitious. There's this song called The Listening Chair Mm. on your album Sparks. And I'm guessing some people probably don't know about it who are listening. Could you maybe explain a little bit about the sort of where that song came from and that song's concept? Cat, blue, piano are just some of the things I like. So the more that I see of them in my day, the better I sleep at night. Mom, dad, just... So, well, originally it was a commission um, by Eric Whittaker, who wanted a five-minute a cappella piece for his prom in London, and he wanted me to write something for the choir to sing. So I was like, "Wow, okay, that's a challenge." <laughs> um, that the whole reason of Sparks was um, to write to basically be able to say yes to different projects so that I wasn't just like, no, I must only make my music in my studio for a year. Instead, I did a different project every three months um, over three years. So I had 12 songs by the end of it. Um, Some of them took a bit longer, like Me the Machine, for example, (laughs) with the gloves. Um, Sure. And some of them took no time at all. Um, But that one, yeah, I kind of thought, okay, well, where do I start? How do I start? Now, this isn't just for me. This is for Eric. This is for all the people that are going to be there at the proms. This is for the choir. There's going to be people of all ages. So I thought, I wonder if there's a song that needs to exist in the world. Like, I wonder if I built this, I got this chair idea that I wanted people to sit in the chair and I wanted to ask them, what is the song that still needs to be written? And we had hundreds of people sit in the chair all around the UK and oddly in the Sydney Opera House. Um, And so... They, with all of these answers from all different age groups and me just, you know, interviewing all the people that came in and out of the chair. Um, of course, there was no overriding thing that they all wanted. I thought it would be something like, everybody just get along or let's be good to our planet. You know? <laughs> Never so simple, is it? Um, but what was interesting was I noticed that each age group had similar interests or were mm. coming from a similar viewpoint. So the older they got, the more widely they started to think, and the more about the environment or children, you know, when they were kind of around the 30s kind of mark. Um, mm-hmm. Or they would be having a midlife crisis or they would be, you know, kind of worried about how they looked all the time when they're like around the teenage years or Mm -hmm. they would be just only interested in one syllable things like cat dog um which is like (laughs) naught to seven and then when they got a bit older they just wanted to be able to dance so it just got a bit more like 
I just want to, I just want somebody to dance to. Like I just want to have fun. Um, so kind of seven to fourteen or whatever. Um, so I kind of blocked them into seven year groups, which is quite useful because I was thirty five at the time and it needed to be five minutes long, and each year represented seven years of my life. Sorry, each minute represented seven years. So I right. had a five minute piece up to the age of thirty five with these seven year uh, periods. So I wrote the song um, as if I was you know, that part of my, uh, of my life. So it starts off with cat, we had a cat, blue, I like the colour blue, piano, I played the piano, um, right. are just some of the things I like. And the more of these things I can get in my life, the better I sleep mm-hmm. at night. Um, mum, dad, Giles, Juliet and, um, and Juliet, no, mum, dad, Giles, Lizzie and Juliet. So they're all people that are close to me. Um, are just some of the people I love, you know. So the idea was that you could actually in, interchange that first minute singing it to your daughter, your child or they could sing oh, along and exchange sure. it for things they liked that was the idea i don't think anyone's ever anyone's ever done that but that was the plan um mm-hmm. and then i talk about you know composer or maybe an astronaut like things that i'd like to be when i was right. a kid people say what do you want to be when you grow up and i'm like mm-hmm. i don't know composer or an astronaut um <laughs> and then 14 onwards it talks about um you know, nobody liking me and I don't know what to do and I'm drinking and, you know, boyfriends and all that. What do I do to make you hate me so much? Is it the clothes I wear? The way I speak? Wonder bra thrown round the German classroom You wouldn't understand I'll never live it down Hiding in the bushes Twenty-one, you get into the groove of things, and you know everything's cool. It's just like that was in my, I was in my frou-frou band. Everything was going well, and then um, twenty-eight to thirty-five, which is the period I was in, was just like one crazy mess of. It just got darker and darker towards the end because the more I had self-doubt and I, I didn't know what was going on. Things were getting out of hand, and I had so many things going on. I didn't have any time, and I was tired, and mm-hmm. and I just felt like something was missing. Um, and then it's funny because during that moment of recording this video, like in the round, uh, the the runaround of this ha- this old house that I grew up in that whole time, um, mm-hmm. I was singing these words, and I I interviewed at the end of it to this this group, the, this couple of guys who were interviewing me, and um, they were like, "What do you think that the next seven years is going to be about?" And I was like, "I'd really like to have kids." Um, and then the guy, one of the guys, um, ended up having a kid with. Um, oh, wow, really? And that scout, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> so, there we go. So, you're now seven years out, because the plan, right, is mm. that you are going to add another minute to the song for each seven years as you continue to live. That's right, but I'm actually a year and a half late, because oh. I was meant to finish it when I'm 42. Well, actually, I had to go mm-hmm. through my 42nd year. 
Well, actually, no, I didn't do that with 35. It's up to 42. So I should have actually kind of, I thought it'd take me like a couple of months um, to do it, you know, to kind of find find the thing. But so much just really, I mean, my 42nd year was the worst year of my life. It was absolutely horrendous. This was, mm. you know, last year. Um, because, well, a year and a half ago. But my sister died. Oh, I'm sorry. Brexit happened. Um coronavirus lockdown yeah lost just tons of money couldn't couldn't keep everyone going um because harry potter was basically keeping me alive um, right. and i just had to rethink everything and i just didn't have any time to think about to think about the listening chair <laughs> so yeah. the next one is going to be a minute and maybe 20 seconds long Oh, that's a good <laughs> that's a good solution. Give yourself a little bit more time because yeah. it's a little bit more time that you're talking about. Yeah, because I think it would be very hard to write about the thirty fifth, the thirty five to forty two without including the the thing that happened just at the end of my forty second year, which, right? Or when, just as about, as I was about to go into forty two, um, I just it would it wasn't it just wasn't possible because how could, it would be like a nanosecond with the most intense thing that's ever happened to me, my sister dying. I just wasn't, I just couldn't have done it. So, yeah, but those people who know me, they they know and the fans know and they're okay, they're waiting. Oh yeah, sure, I'm sure. I have actually got a beginning. I have actually got um, the beginning of it mapped out on nice. my app. You can hear the beginning of that next minute. Oh, um, that's cool. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> when you finish it, how are you? Are you going to like release it as a single, like a, an updated version? Is that like yeah. how do you think you'll yeah, do yeah. that? Yeah, that's that's the, that's the plan. But I might actually do it. Um, I might. I mean, it might be a little bit what, too long to wait. But I do eventually get my licenses back for Speak for Yourself, Ellipse and Sparks. Um, oh, really? Quite soon, within a couple that's of years. That's great. So I'm considering waiting for that moment and then re-releasing it myself with the new listing chair on it to kind of celebrate oh that's a really cool idea but it won't be for a while do you think about remixing those albums or reapproaching the production on them at all some of the older stuff or nah no nah, i'm not going to do that i yeah. i mean i could but i've got way more other things that i'd like to do <laughs> that seems wise that makes sense i know some people do that but yeah yeah um, so speaking of Speak for Yourself, since I did an episode on Hide and Seek, I do want to at least ask you a little bit about that song, though I'm sure you're probably kind of sick of talking about it in, in some ways. But it was such a huge song. How do you feel about it now? Where are we? What the hell is going on? I think that that must be so interesting on so many levels to have had a song that's just this major cultural thing, you know, so many years ago. You still play it, you perform it in all these different ways. What's your relationship like with that song? Yeah, a deep friendship. Um, yeah. Much respect for that song. It's kind of, it, I mean, I just feel so lucky that that it that, that we that it happened um, mm -hmm. because it's like saved my life so many times. Um I, you know, it came about one evening frustrated because my computer had blown up and I'd lost all my work. It was that album that I'd put everything on the line. You know, I'd remortgaged my flat. I literally had yeah. no other way out than to finish it and make a success of it. Um, and 
so within a couple of months or something, I hadn't backed up really anything I'd done. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, so I was I was deeply upset, as you can imagine. Um, and but before I left the studio, I always try to leave the studio with a good vibe, because otherwise I'd just be back there on my own in the bad vibe from from the night before. So sure. I thought, well, what can I do? I was looking around and. I noticed this harmonizer box that I'd been given um, by James Towler, uh, a friend of mine. So I, I noticed this harmonizer sitting there and I'd had a text from this guy who had lent it to me um, like that morning. He was just like, look, I really need to give this back. So it's, it's basically oh, the guy funny. that he worked for. He lent mm-hmm. it to me because he thought he'd, I'd like right. it. But now he, this guy needed it. So he just said, um, yeah, I really need to come and get it from you. So I was like, okay, well, if I'm I'll just play something with that because at least I should try it out before I give it back. So I knew how it worked, you know, just plug in your piano, your keyboard sure. into the MIDI and then you sing into it through the microphone. And I didn't have my computer to record it to, so I just used the mini disc player and recorded it into that. And just chose a, a preset that sounded nice. Um, it mm-hmm. had a four-note polyphony on it. So, it, yeah, basically whatever notes I could play. I know your audience are very you know, music savvy, but for those who aren't, um, basically, if you played seven notes down with your fingers, it would choose the first four that you played. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a bit surprising, some of the inversions that happened. And it led me to improvise in a certain way, as if I was jamming with another person. Um, So the first thing that happened was, this is the most gorgeous sound. Um, I've never heard this. I've never, my, I've never been able to do this, like have a choir right. of me's. How fantastic is that? So that was the first <laughs> thing. I was just like, gosh, like completely overwhelmed with this. How cool was that? Um, and the first words that came to mind were, where are we? What the hell is going on? Um, which was like representative of this amazing sound that I was hearing. Where are we? Um, But then I was thinking about something subconsciously that came more to the front as the more I improvised with this this piece of equipment. And there was a point in the middle of the song where I was, I mean, I'd got kind of halfway through. It's quite intact in terms of structure and um, melody and everything, how we hear it now. And I was getting to a point in the second chorus where I was like, oh, I, I was like almost outside of myself and I started to hear this other line. Um, so the first thing I did after it was I went back and sang that other line, which is the only other voice that's in there. In mm, that, the one part where you come in. and kind In of... the second chorus. Yeah. Hide and It was it was quite an out of body experience to be honest. It was like I was kind of sitting next to myself, kind of writing it, because I was so I felt weirdly detached from myself because my voice was 
sounding very different. So right. it had this weird effect where I could kind of be objective, but I was kind of looking, kind of, but I was obviously not, huh. I was just there. Um, and so right at the end, kind of finished this thing, was really loved it. Um, I mean, it was a lot longer. It was like seven minutes long or whatever. Sure, of course. And then I, my studio was connect, like, right next to this train line, which is why there's so many trains on that album. Um, but at this point, one passed and it harmonised with itself. So when you listen to that, you'll hear this sound and it's mm-hmm. that's what happened on the night. And then I just loved it. Um, and I, I spent, obviously I was trying to get my computer fixed and all that palaver. Um, but then I spent quite a long time about two weeks writing the lyrics because I really wanted to get them just right. And I just couldn't quite get the same feeling um, in the breaths that I got on the demo. So I, I copped, copied and pasted, chopped out those those breaths from the mini disc recording and put them into the final recording. Oh, that's cool. And then just very carefully um, put in the tiniest touches to just give it some air and space and mm-hmm. one of the things that I really needed to do, because it was just me in the studio and it, there was no air um, to the sound, was I took um, the, a record, I took my mini disc recorder to um, a house and I made myself a meal with my boyfriend at the time. And the sound of that meal that was cooking, um, the sound of it kind of frying in the pan, is very quietly behind everything in hide and seek really oh so that's very cool if you listen really carefully it's kind of sounds mm-hmm. a little bit like light rain but it's actually mm-hmm. food in a frying pan yeah i uh, guess i know the sound you're talking about but <laughs> it's just a frying pan that's pretty funny it does yeah. give it that sort of ambience that opens yeah. it up a little bit but it was important that it was in that particular kitchen um with that particular meal with that particular person that's really cool <laughs> you don't care sit. you don't care a bit it's funny how different it is from everything else on the album. Did that surprise you that that song was the one that became such a phenomenon, or was that more? Were you more expecting that, like, well, this song has a certain magic just because of the way you wrote it? No, I really thought it was completely self-indulgent, and nobody would ever like it. Um, <laughs> I thought this is my, this is the one for me. I'm doing this one entirely for oh, me. Oh, that's so funny. Because people would come in and they'd be like, "That's that's that's really interesting." are you going to put anything else on it? And I'd be like, <laughs> no, it's an acapella. Um, and quite a lot of people would be like, it's really, it's good, but I feel like it's missing something. And I'd be mm. like, nope, it's not missing anything. Nope. <laughs> um, so I didn't really have much hope for it. I just really liked it. And ne- it was never in a million years going to get on the radio, unless somebody like Jason Derulo did what he did to it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, very few people had the balls to play that on the radio. Um, and when they did in the UK, it was like this uproar of hatred or this really? complete flood of love for it. Um, they either loved it or oh, hated funny. it. And, and it was kind of, it got known for a little bit as the Marmite track um, in the UK because they had such a like complete opposite um, reaction. Oh, because people are so love it or hated about Marmite? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, so yeah, but it was really... The only the, the time when it really had its day was, um, yeah, when it got into the OC. Um, right, sure. 
That was when I first heard it. Yeah. And I think giving it, um, you know, having a picture allows you to listen to very different music that you wouldn't normally listen to. And you mm-hmm. often find things in films that you're like, God, I love that, that you would never listen to just like you would turn it off on the radio. Um, mm-hmm. But because it's in a particular moment and you're kind of, be, you already respect and trust that thing that you're watching, otherwise you wouldn't be watching it. Um, so you're like already invested in that and already in this heightened emotional state that you kind of get this, you know, the songs sneak in and kind of that's that's why it's so great to get stuff into film and TV because you get that sneaky chance to, you know, infiltrate um, people's musical tastes when they would never normally go somewhere like that so that's why i've been so i've been so lucky because i've never really had any radio play but i've had a lot of film and tv um so yeah i'm i'm i feel so lucky that it came uh that the song came out of me somehow um and that it's had this incredible life and i think the fact that it is just a cappella and the fact that the words are quite ambiguous in many ways it's the reason of its success it's because it has this space um to find yourself within it it's not shouty it's not it's not actually any particular genre it's just a kind of thing of itself and it allows you to like it whether you like hip-hop or like speed metal you can still like that song because it doesn't fit in a category um if anything it's kind of closest to a hymn um than Mm, than anything um so yeah I, i i love it it's cool that it's the song that you it was like a very you thing that you created in this very personal way you've described it as self-indulgent and then it wound up becoming this beloved thing that's endured for so long and it's sort of similar to what you were saying earlier about performing and making mistakes in front of people and being vulnerable in that way and them being there for it and it actually freeing you up in a lot of ways those things feel related anyways to me you know like that, that that you can be so open with your with your listeners it's really really cool yeah and it, it is through that song, actually, that um, I have found, yeah, a kind of freedom in exploration of my own music. Never never feeling, I mean, obviously there are some people that would like me to write 20 other hide-and-seeks, but why would I do that? <laughs> um, of course. I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to just be a bad carbon copy of a good song um, time and time again. And I'm happy that other people have taken that, kind of sound and that it's found a kind of space with other music because it it is I don't know there's something very earthy and human deeply human about it um that kind of effect on the voice so yeah so I think it's done its bit I don't I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make another harmonized track I mean that would just be so rubbish um I like using harmonizer you know during the live shows sure um and I will use a harmonizer here and there, but I'll never, I'll never do that again. Why, you know, it would only ever be second rate from that. Um, what I do strive to do is create something that has, that is impactful, um, that I hope to be impactful and has far reaching, um, a far reaching life, not for money. Um, but just, I know that song, has helped so many people, me included. And I would love to bring another few songs out into the world that do that too. I think um, 
I think Wait It Out has done that for quite a few people. Another, another mm, song. Yeah, I can see that. And You Know Where to Find Me has done that for me, actually, now, too, weirdly, because it's about the river Thames where I spent a lot of time with my sister. So I've actually kind of found a meaning in it that I never intended. Like 10 years later, I kind of find that because mm. I was, I wrote that song by the river Thames and my sister and my mum came to visit me in this boat that sat for a while on top of the Queen Elizabeth Hall. No, the National Theatre. Oh, I can't remember. No, the Queen Elizabeth Hall in London. I was commissioned to write this song and I wrote it through the night and I kind of walked up and down the the low tide of the River Thames. I spoke to loads of people and my sister was there and I used to live there. Um, so, yeah, that song, people ask me to sing it now and I really think of Juliet. Um, but I think a lot of other people like that song too for the same reason that I like it now, is that, you know, we go to water for to celebrate or to just go into deep thought or to mourn, you know, um, so yeah, that song has, I feel that song has a connection with a lot of people as well. You know where to find me when you're on your way up, or bustle and busy, enough is enough, cause life's sweet assemblages are quick to drift Well, this has been wonderful. I could ask you a million more questions. We should probably wrap up. I usually ask people to tell listeners of three albums that they've been listening to that they're into. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you the same thing. And I, I understand that you maybe have a slightly different answer, but I'm, I'm curious what yeah. you uh, have that people should check out. Yeah, well, I'm slightly... I'm kind of annoyed with myself all the time about this, but I just never really listened to music. Mm. I mean, I love music and I... Love it when I am, um, you know, on tour, and I and I'm just able to listen to music. I'm able. I'm yeah. free of the fact that I'm basically free because I don't have to work in the studio. I don't feel guilty for not working. I I can't possibly do the amount of emails that I do when I'm on tour, and I it's just kind of accepted that you're working you're seen to be working I feel like I'm working because I get the response from the audience and there's a band sure. there and it all feels very tangible so then that's when I listen to music when I feel relaxed um, but day to day I just can't I just can't listen to it it's too I just don't have the minutes to it feels like an indulgence to listen to music mm. I can't listen to it in the background it distracts me um, so I honestly say I haven't listened to anything for years um, the wow. only the last album that I listened to all the way through was Richard Devine, um, Sort Love. Um, that album I listened to, I listened to it on my headphones. I was cooking some dinner, I'd had a drink, I was on my own, and I was just loving listening to music really loud in my headphones at home alone. And I started to tweet it out because I was like, oh my god, this album's amazing. <laughs> So that was the last time I really listened to an album. Um, wow. But I actually haven't listened to 
anything for years. Um, a, a song that I really love that I go back to when I'm feeling a bit down um, is Right X, Ya Ya Ya. I really love that oh, track. Okay. I don't know why, uh, but I found it at a certain point and um, just kind of probably browsing when I had an evening. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one that I love to listen to, uh, is because it reminds me of my sister, um, is Biffy Clyro Mountains. <laughs> love that one because that's the last concert that she went to um so but having said that uh the thing that i am listening to when i you know skipping in the park because at the moment i'm doing a lot of mm-hmm. skipping i can't run because i sprained my ankle a year ago and it still hurts um so i skip to interdependence podcast with holly herndon and matt dryhurst and i absolutely love it it's like lifeblood um oh wow i don't know it, but i'll have to check it out that's so i've cool. listened to hours of that because i've basically been trying to step down a bit from the the amount of work that I've put upon myself and I'm trying to say no to more things and I'm trying to get my health because I'm not in such good health at the moment um so yeah I've been listening to a lot and just so appreciating the amount of time and effort and research that they've gone into and with these deep conversations about tech about you know the future about where we are right now, what's Web3, all these things that I feel like I'm slightly out of touch with that I don't mm. want to be. Um, and just really grateful for their hard work. So I'd support them on Patreon. They're the only people oh, nice. I support on all Patreon. Right. Um, I've just never done it before. And I'm like, they are amazing. I'm going to give them £12 a month. That's always a good sign <laughs> when someone does that. That's cool. Oh, I'll totally check them out. That sounds like a good show. Well, Imogen Heap, thank you so much for all of your beautiful music. <laughs> and thanks so much for coming on Strong Songs. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And that'll do it for my chat with the great Imogen Heap. Thanks again so much to her for coming on the show, and thanks to all of you for listening. I I really hope you liked this episode. As you know, I'm taking a bit of a break for the month of July, but I am glad to still have a couple of interviews to run in the place of normal scripted ones. We'll have another one of those for you all in two weeks. And it's funny that Imogen mentioned Patreon because this show is made possible by my wonderful patrons. This is an entirely listener-supported show, so if you like strong songs and you think that you might want to chip in to help me make it, go to patreon.com slash strong songs. Okay, that's enough for me. I'll be back in two weeks with another interview. Until then, I hope you're all taking care and as always, finding the time to listen closely.